This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they live near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So, spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things. Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Heidenreich from Good Bird Inc. Robin Shawokas has the week off. This week, I have special guest Dr. Donald Brightsmith of Shubat Exotic Bird Health Center at Texas A&M University. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? Get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Kitty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain, likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. This week, Dr. Donald Brightsmith is with us. And Don and I met, I think, well, we've been at several conferences together where we actually didn't talk to one another. <laughs> and then I think we finally, finally officially met at uh, Laura Park in Tenerife in the Canary Islands. That sounds about right. And it was a fabulous conference out there at, uh, in, in the Canary Islands, hosted by the Laurel Park Foundation, correct? Yep. And featured a lot of biologists, field biologists, who were doing work in conservation biology, which is what Don does. So, Don, maybe you could share a little bit with us about how you got into conservation biology. Well, to start with, I've always been interested in birds. When some of my earliest memories were of flocks of bluebirds flying across the road in upstate New York, and mom and dad were always very supportive of me being interested in birds. Both of them were bird watchers, and I grew up a bird watcher pretty much. By age nine, I had spotted a scarlet tanager in my backyard in New York and was very happy and proud. And so I went on to Cornell University to study natural resources management, then to the University of Arizona. 
And it was there that I went to the Tucson Aviculture Society and started to meet my first aviculturists. And I've been talking to and listening to aviculturists ever since. So how did that all lead to working out in the wild, though, with birds? I, obviously, you, you enjoy birds and being out there and watching them, but it actually led to a career for you. Yes, all of my siblings have been interested in birds growing up, but I was, as I say, I was the only one crazy enough to try and make a living at it. Um, so through lots of study, and then after my master's at the University of Arizona, where I studied um, hawks near the Grand Canyon, I started working at Duke University on my PhD, and from there started doing research in South America, mostly in the rainforests of southeastern Peru. And obviously other birds, other bird species are of interest to you, but you ended up working with parrots or a lot with parrots lately. Since my master's, really all of my research has been on parrots, in part because when I met the aviculturists in Tucson, Arizona, and then later on in Raleigh-Durham Cage Bird Society in North Carolina, I realized that we had a group of people who were very, very interested in knowledge about these birds from the wild. They were very interested in the conservation of these birds. And there was a real lack of information out there to give to these people. The perfect example was the book New World Parrots in Crisis in 1992, which pointed out that there were, these birds were incredibly endangered in the wild, but yet very, people, very few people were working on them. Once I figured that out and I saw all of these people interested in them in the United States, I figured this would be a good place to focus my research career to try and help these birds that people care so much about. So when was the first time you made a trip down to South America to see parrots in the wild? Well, the first trip was actually to Costa Rica in Central America. I was taking a course as a master's student. And in the capital city of San Jose, Costa Rica, I was walking through a park, and the very first wild parrot I saw was an um, orange-chinned parakeet, a brodigeris, uh, perched up in a city park walking along a branch, and he looked just like a parrot walking across a perch in a cage, and it, it really hit home. And within a couple of weeks, I actually saw scarlet macaws in the wild flying just at early dawn with the light of a, of a new sunrise coming up underneath the wings and lighting up the underside of the wings. And with that, I was hooked. Yeah, I would say that would have to be an amazing experience. I'm trying to remember the first time I saw a parrot out in the wild, other than like a Quaker in, in the United States. But uh, it might have been South America as well, because I, I was fortunate to go down to um, the Hyacinth Cliffs and see the Hyacinth macaws out in the wild and to see a flock of 40 birds, you know, just a few few feet away from you blows you away and then of course seeing them flying as well so where's your research station at this point currently uh and since 1999 the majority of my research occurs in southeastern peru at a site called the tambopata research center where i've been running the tambopata macaw project and it's actually a tourist lodge run by the company rainforest expeditions but they have supported our research ever since I started. And in fact, it was the owners of Rainforest Expeditions, Eduardo Nikander and uh, Kurt Hall, who were working on that research since 1989. In 1999, they agreed to let me take over the research and start running it. And since then, we've worked on a wide variety of different topics. And what are some of those projects that you've studied? We've been looking a lot at the clay lakes. So if you've seen photos of hundreds of parrots or dozens and dozens of macaws flying back and forth from a, from a large kind of dirt cliff, um, those are the clay lakes of southeastern Peru. And one of the largest clay lakes uh, known is 
at Tumblepotter Research Center, and that's been a, a major part of our studies. We've looked at why the parrots eat the soil, uh, that's a very big one, and the behavior of the birds at the clay lake. Some of the interesting things we've found have been that these birds use the clay lake most during the breeding season, and it's apparently so that they can feed the soil to their chicks. So there's a lot of chicks that are getting pretty large amounts of soil. And in addition, we've found that while there is some research out there to suggest that it's binding up the toxins and keeping birds safe from the toxins in their diets, my research is really showing quite a bit more that it has to do with sodium. So sodium is the major ingredient of salt. And just like us, how we love our potato chips and our other, our other salty foods, these parrots are going after, apparently, the salts that are in this soil. Why might that be? Well, when we started looking at the plants in the areas around the clay lake in southeastern Peru, where these birds live, we find that the plants on average have less sodium in them than lettuce. So if you had to eat do nothing but lettuce all the time, you'd be dying for salt. And sure enough, these really salty soils are the places that these parrots are coming down. So we've got a lot of lines of evidence, but it, to me it's suggesting that um, that has a lot to do with sodium. But that's not an excuse for people to feed their parrots potato chips, right? No. We don't need to be giving parrots potato chips, mostly because the diets that your birds have in captivity have plenty of salt in them. Also, you have to think of the size, the scale. If you give a small parrot or a medium-sized parrot a couple potato chips, that's like you eating bags and bags of potato chips, which we don't need to be doing either, because uh, we know that salt gives us high blood pressure and causes problems. So we no need to overload our parrots with salt in captivity. So how do you collect information on this? What, what kind of things are you looking at when you're out in the wild there to get this information that they're, they're possibly eating that for sodium? Well, we do a lot of things. Uh, we're ve I'm very lucky in that we have crews in Peru working 365 days a year at the site. Volunteers from the United States and Europe, Peruvians, both volunteer and paid, are out there all the time. And what we're looking at is we're looking at the use of the clay lake. So we have people out there at least 10 to 15 times a month collecting data on how many birds are on each part of the clay lake. Then at certain times we have gone and collected soils from the clay lake, brought them back to the U.S., and actually analyzed them in the laboratory to see how much of the different nutrients are in there. Also, we've tested to see how well they bind up with toxins that might be in the diets of these parrots. We also work quite a bit with nests, and that's how we figured out that the chicks are, are being fed soil. So we've looked at nest success and behavior of the parrots around the nest. We even now have some video cameras in some of the nests so we can watch the parents interacting with the chicks. And that's been fascinating because for, for many years we've hypothesized about what goes on and we thought we had an idea, but it's great to actually see it. And what are some of the species that you look at? The majority of our nesting work is with scarlet macaw. In the past, we've also worked with blue and gold macaw, uh, looking at some nests. But at the clay lake, we're lucky in that there's about 17, 18 species of parrots that will come to the clay lake, and we're there we collect data on all of them. We're also looking at the birds away from the clay lake out in the forest. So we're doing censuses to see how the number of birds in the forest changes throughout the year. With that as well, we have been collecting data on all of the species that we come across. Interesting. Well, I think we might need to take a little break. So let's take a break, and then we'll come back and hear a little bit more about Don's research.
We'll be right back after these messages. Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Heidenreich of Good Bird, Inc., and Robin Shawokas has the week off. This week I have Dr. Donald Brightsmith with us, and he's been telling us a little bit about the research he's been doing down in South America. Now, I understand there's some more stuff you've been working on besides what you've shared with us so far. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? One of the things we've been doing is, as we've been watching the, the number of parrots go up and down in the forest each year, what we find is that some species just will disappear for a few months. But we never know where they're going. So what we've done is we're developing with a group of other people, including the Wildlife Conservation Society, Laurel Parque Foundation, Amigos de las Aves USA, and some other funders and manufacturers, a telemetry collar that works via satellite. So you put this collar on a parrot. In this case, we've put them on blue and gold macaws. And off they go. And wherever they go... Once every three or four days, a location is beamed up to a satellite, and it's sent to me as an email. So sitting at my desk here in Texas, I can figure out where my parrots are flying around. And it's been very exciting because we've found that these birds move over huge areas, um, areas maybe a third of the size of the state of Connecticut. And off they go, flying around different areas at different times of the year, apparently tracking food sources that appear in the trees. So a good place with fruit, they may go and spend two weeks there. And then eventually, they'll come back to the area where we trap them, which is right around Tambopata Research Center. We've only done it on two birds, so this year we're going to go down and try again and see if these patterns hold. But this gives us a first idea of how big an area these birds might need to survive, which is very important because if you only protect a little tiny piece of habitat and the birds are spend three quarters of the time outside of that area it's not really going to help for the long term. That's really interesting information because there's a, there's a few things there. First of all, I think about that telemetry because I know a lot of people that would love to have telemetry that works on parrots, although uh, I'm guessing that it's a rather new experimental device. So far, it only works for large parrots. Because of how much it weighs, we can only use it on birds that are about 1 kilo, 2.2 pounds in weight. Smaller birds, it would be too big. 
so far. But we're hoping that by developing this technique, we can make it for smaller birds in the future. And it's it's telemetry, not GPS? So it's telemetry. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I love the I- idea that they travel so much farther because the notion of getting more justification to preserve more land is, fa- is fabulous. That's what it's turning out to be. And this year we're also going to put some collars on some scarlet macaws probably, and we may get to see how they move in comparison to the blue and gold. And when you're doing your studies, do you also, um, I, I, my understanding is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a whole lot of great ethograms out there on parrot behavior. I'm assuming you're, you're getting some of that data when you're out there? We haven't been following a lot of individual birds. Um, so, And I'm not trained as a behaviorist. So while I, I have a pretty good feel for the behavior of these birds in the wild, I haven't been working heavily on ethograms with these birds. I guess what I was thinking about when you're, especially when you're talking about feeding and things like that, that um, there's, there's always tends to be a lot of discussion of like how many times a day parrots eat or how frequently or are they gorging themselves and I'm wondering if your research is showing that it's quite varied because you were saying that they travel so far and maybe they'll pig out for two weeks on one certain fruit and then I'm thinking perhaps food isn't available for a little while and they're maybe not as full. It's hard to say. Um, I'm sure at the the time of year when there's not much food around, their behavior is quite erratic. But I think during the, during the breeding season that they fall into much, much more regular schedules where groups of birds are seen frequently in the exact same trees. So if you're going past the same trees at the same time of day, you're likely to pick birds up. Um, so while I haven't investigated it scientifically, I get the feeling that during the breeding season, when they wake up in the morning, they know where their foods are, they move at probably a fairly regular schedule, um, feed, go back, give, feed their young and and their mate, uh, and then go off again. Are there that many researchers out there that have a, you know, group of birds that are that well studied available to them these days? Or parrots, I should say. Well, we're lucky in that there's a long history of research at our site. But I have to admit, the in Brazil, all some other researchers in Peru, um, in Venezuela, in Ecuador, Costa Rica, we're getting a much bigger body of parrot researchers in the Americas, and it's it's really great to see. There are new networks starting up, like the Mesoamerican macaw network. Um, that are bringing together parrot researchers, most of whom are from Latin America, are Latin American natives. And it's really exciting for me because this means we have real initiatives in the parrot range countries where these parrots actually live to help protect them. And that, for me, is very exciting. Absolutely. Now, one thing I didn't ask you earlier is how did you end up being affiliated with Texas A&M University? Well, I was working in Peru, and um, Dr. Ian Tizard of the Shubat Center came down and said, why don't you come up and work with us here at at Texas A&M? He was very interested in my conservation research. I was just starting to get into some disease research and some nutrition research, and he felt I would be a good fit here. So with his support, came up, got started here, and since that time, I've really gotten heavily into the nutrition research, and this is should be of interest to the pet owners, because what we're trying to do is use information of what these birds eat in the wild in order to help improve captive parrot nutrition. Uh, unfortunately, nutritional problems are one of the biggest problem health problems facing parrots in captivity today. So what we're doing is we're looking at both samples from 
chicks, of what the chicks are being fed by their parents, and what the foods the parents are eating themselves to try and get a better idea of what these birds eat under natural conditions. And as our research program progresses, we're hoping to use this information, not only from Peru, but we have collaborators in Mexico and Brazil right now, and use that to reformulate things like hand-feeding formulas. That's short-term plans. And then possibly beyond that, get a better handle on what, they're eat, what the adults are eating so that we can make better maintenance formulas, et cetera. And are any trends emerging? Are you noticing some things that are happening? Um, we have one site with scarlet macaws so far. And yes, there are quite a few differences between what those birds are eating and what we think parrots need to eat. Um, not quite ready to state exactly what they do and don't need, but the, the, the research is very interesting. The first papers are being, are being prepared and and once those are published, they'll be available on my website, along with lots of other things. So we already have lots of um, research papers that are up on my website. So if you Google my last name, Brightsmith and Macaw, you'll find right near the top of the list will be my official website with lots and lots more information for people to look up who are interested. Now, I was also thinking, as you were talking about the nutrition studies there, that I would imagine that parrots are, are fairly adaptable, they, I would think, based on what's available in their environment. That's a good question. Most people think of parrots, as especially large macaws, as being isolated off in, all, in the furthest away reaches of the, most, of the best protected areas. But it turns out from research that we just published, and this is on my website as well, there, when parrots are in areas that have been turned into f small farms with little patches of forest in, in Latin America, in this study was done in Costa Rica, they can actually survive quite well by eating a lot of introduced species. So just like your parrots flying around in Miami or Los Angeles are eating things that they may have never seen in their lives, when new plants are brought into the native environments, a lot of parrots can apparently adjust to these new food sources. So what this suggests, at least to me, is if we stop killing parrots in, well, if people stop killing parrots in their native ranges and if they stop collecting them for the illegal pet trade, we will probably have a tropical world that is basically full of parrots. There will be parrots around as long as we stop going after them and killing them, as long as there's some trees left for them to nest right. in. So that because of that adaptability, they can survive even if that environment has a few changes to it, like farming and things like that, but not, not to the extent that their habitat's destroyed, obviously. So um, speaking about that habitat, I understand that if people would like, there's an opportunity to visit. There certainly are. There's actually always opportunities to visit. The company, Rainforest Expeditions, as we said, Tambopata Research Center is actually a tourist lodge. So if you contact that company, they'll be able to set you up with a parrot lover's tour, specifically for those who are interested in seeing parrots. But we have some other options as well. This coming January, January 11th to 22nd, the Earthwatch Expeditions is leading an expedition to come down and actually work on the Tambopata Macaw Project, collecting data and helping us gather the data that we need and the money we need to work to help protect the parrots in this region. Another option we have is there's a continuing education course. So this is going to be a set of lectures by myself and Dr. Jill Heatley, a veterinarian here at Te Texas A&M. And that's from the 26th of January to the 1st of February. Again, you can come down and in this case, we will show you the parrots and we will give you lectures on nutrition, health, um, keeping parrots, and you'll have a chance to discuss these issues with the whole rest of the group as well. 
So on those opportunities, they get to go out to the clay licks and things like that? They certainly do. They come out to the clay licks. They get to see the nests. Um, they'll probably also see the macaw researchers take a chick down and work with it, um, doing weighing and measuring. So you'll get to see exactly what we do in either one of those trips. So it's kind of like they get to step into the world of field biology for a little while. There you go, especially at the Earthwatch one where you will actually be collecting data yourself. That's the way to get a feel for the life of a field biologist because it sounds like it's um, all sorts of glamorous, etc. But it's, it's a job, and it's one that I love very much and certainly wouldn't trade for anyone else. But if you wanted to get a feel for it, please come down and visit us. Yeah, I had my feel for it when I dated a field biologist, and we had to go collect salamanders, which live in vernal pools in cow pastures, which means walking through manure-filled ponds to collect salamanders. What fun. <laughs> well, at least our, our site's a little bit more pristine, so you won't have as many cows to deal with. <laughs> but the good news is it was all in the name of conservation. He actually gets lots of, lots of land preserved because of collecting those endangered species and showing that they're on those properties. So it's good work. You can feel good about it, and, uh, and you'll get to see some beautiful animals at the same time. So how can people sign up for that, any of those opportunities? Okay, either through the Rainforest Expeditions webpage, uh, which is perunature.com, or the Texas A&M Office of Continuing Education for the course, or directly through Earthwatch Expeditions for coming down and helping to collect data. Sounds good. I hope we get some people signed up for that. Actually, you do have a little bit of space left, right? But you do have a lot of people signed up? We're getting close to the limit on the course. So if you're interested in that, you probably should hurry up. I think there's still quite a few spots for the Earthwatch trip. Great. We'll definitely hop on that. Well, thank you, Don, for sharing your information about research with macaws and other parrots out in the wild. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. Well, on to some upcoming events. November 8th through 9th is the Parrot Training and Enrichment Weekend in Austin, Texas. And as Don mentioned, January 11th through the 22nd is the Earthwatch trip to Tambopata. And then January 26th through the 1st is the Parrots of the Amazon Rainforest in Tambopata. And um, Don Brightsmith will be there along with Jill Heatley. And you can get some continuing education credits for that. And then March 28th, I'll be in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, teaching a flight training seminar. And then April 18th and 19th, Dr. Susan Friedman and myself will be in Canada at the uh, Parrot Behavior and Training Workshop hosted by parrotworkshops.org. May 9th, I'll be in Finland. And then a few other dates um, around that in Europe, I will also be in Portugal and France. So I'll have those up on my website pretty soon. You can check the, that out for more information. And then May 29th through the 31st in Edison, New Jersey, it's the Best Parrot Conference, which stands for Behavior Enrichment Science and Training. We'd love for you to sign up for that. You can uh, find out more information about that at bestparrotconference.com. And remember, if you want more information about Don Brightsmith, his work, uh, go ahead and visit our Google Brightsmith and Macaw, and that'll bring you to his website. You can also visit Good Bird Inc. for some information on training, the Leather L's for information on enrichment, and um, a few resources uh, that we want you to check out that are somewhat related to the information Don gave you today. Forshaw's Parrots of the World is a great book that has some good natural history information on parrots. Another book by Noel Snyder called The Carolina Parakeet will get you thinking about conservation with parrots, as well as a book called The Spix Macaw, The Race to Save the World's Rarest Bird by Tony Juniper. The training tip of the week, if you're stumped by your bird's behavior, think about natural history of your bird and how it might relate to the behavior your parrot is presenting in your home. And with that, we're just about out of time. A few topics on the horizon. Uh, we plan to do a, a podcast on body language, about sexual behavior in parrots. 
teaching your parrot to play, some common myths about parrot behavior, and uh, how about foraging? It's all the rage. So with that, I think we're just about out of time. You can contact Robin at PetLifeRadio.com. You can contact me at Barbara at PetLifeRadio.com. And if you, you would like transcripts of the show, please visit PetLifeRadio.com. See you next time. Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.